It's good to see all of you this morning. Thanks for being here uh, and choosing Trinity to be the place where you come to worship the Lord uh, on this first day of a brand new week. Uh, you know, it, it truly is a privilege to be able to worship the Lord. It always is, but especially when we gather together, there's something unique and special about that. And uh, it's a great freedom that we have, and we should never take that for granted. And so today, in this place, you know, we're going to worship the Lord uh, in different ways. We're going to worship God through the hearing of his word. In just a moment, I'll read from one of the Psalms. We will bring our worship and praise to God through music as we stand and praise God using our voices to sing loud to him. And uh, it's a great reminder that, you know, we have freedom to worship the Lord uh, as the spirit leads. And so some of us sing real loud and we raise holy hands and other of us just uh, we sit or we stand and we just listen with our eyes closed and we hear those around us and we can worship God in many ways. But even as we pray together and as we fellowship together, got to see some great fellowship before service, it is all a ways that we bring uh, worship to the Lord for he is worthy. You know, God has revealed himself to us. And just think about that for a moment. The God of the universe created all things who created us he has chosen to reveal himself to us in a very loving and compassionate and intimate but yet profound and powerful way. And we talk about there being two main kinds of God's revelation. There's the general revelation that we see in creation. And God has revealed himself and his power uh, to us and him as the creator and the creation around us. You know, uh, I'd like to, uh, to think of weather as a great equalizer because we all have to be subjected to the same weather when we're in that spot you know and and we've had all different kinds of weather recently it's been so nice and warm today it's so nice and cold right the weather's changed and um we have wind and rain and storms and we have sunshine and we have maybe some snow coming and and you know every day is a bit different um but yet we can thank god that he's the god of the weather he's the god of creation and he is intimately involved in it. And so God has revealed himself to us in his natural creation, but also what we call special revelation. And that is through his word, his written word, the Holy Scriptures, but also, of course, his son, Jesus, the word, capital W. And so uh, God is good in that he has revealed himself to us. Amen. 
and uh, we get to hear from him, that very same God. This is Psalm uh, 19 in its entirety, and in this psalm you will notice that God's natural creation, uh, the things around us, are personified, and it's a, a beautiful bit of poetry and song that reminds us that we have a God who is a creator, and he is our creator. So listen to these words, and then I will ask us to stand. We will pray and sing songs of worship to him, our creator God. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, and no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect and refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant and giving light to the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Would you stand, please, and let us pray together. Father, we are about to worship you by lifting our voices and joining our hearts through song. May these praises be a sweet sound to your ear and a blessing to your heart. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to us in your creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the natural creation around us. They speak forth your grandeur. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, your law, and your precepts. They are good, and they are right, and they lead us to life everlasting. May we meditate upon them. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing now in your sight, for you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. To you we sing, to you we give glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Church, let's worship him together now. <laughs> 
Across the pages of time, he who made every living thing, behold him. He who heard humanity's cry, left his throne to wake as a child. He became like the least of us. Behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, the Lamb, the roaring lion. Oh, be still and behold him. Jesus, 
Must.
God is worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. Take a moment to say good morning to somebody next to you. if we can uh, take our seats and find our way back to, um, to our seats and uh, we'll get started as we kind of get caught up in things that we're doing and um, our kids are making their way down the hall and uh, we have a wonderful uh, kids ministry, it's called Trinity Kids and so if, um, if uh, you know anybody that's looking to, uh, to bring their kids to church and get involved in a great ministry, we have wonderful people that devote their time and attention to our kids and teaching them and loving them and worshiping the Lord with them. And so we're grateful for that uh, ministry, one of many. Make sure that you visit our website, trinityallenwood.com. It's got all the information you need to know about our church, uh, about our beliefs and our practices and all the different ministries and ways that you can get involved. Uh, You see uh, our core values uh, all throughout the website and here in the building, uh, that is learn, grow, and serve. That is words that we love to focus on because it reminds us how we pursue being disciples, followers of Jesus, and we learn the truth, and we grow in our faith, and then we serve, and we serve each other, and we serve the world around us. And uh, we learn, grow, and serve, and we do that together. And that's a, a cycle that we repeat throughout our lives 
uh, as uh, followers of Jesus, right? So learning the truth, growing in faith and serving one another. If you remember, as we revealed last week, our theme verse for this year uh, revolves around learning the truth about who Jesus is and who we are. And that theme verse is from John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so our focus this year is to remain, um, uh, to remain keeping our eyes on Jesus as the truth. And as uh, there may be so much confusion and um, chaos and doubt around us in our lives and in our world, uh, that, uh, that we just remember the importance of keeping our faith simple and keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, who is immutable, which means he does not change. And he is our absolute truth, amen? And so we continue to keep our eyes trained and focused on him. So just a few announcements. We call this church life. We get, kind of get caught up in where we are in the life of Trinity. Um, as you heard me mention the last few weeks, that we have a free training seminar in uh, Narcan, and that is, as you know, for, uh, it's an important um, uh, thing to have and to know how to use uh, at your fingertips so that if, uh, God forbid, someone near you, someone that you care about, whether it's at work, at church, at home, um, is um, experiencing uh, an overdose of any kind of medicine that uh, Narcan can save a life. And so we have uh, Anne Ankrum, who is part of our church, and uh, she is trained in this and works with um, the Jersey Shore Addiction Services and uh, will be part of that training. It's just one hour coming up, uh, I think, in a week from Wednesday on the 24th. It's from 6 to 7 p.m., so it's just that one hour, and a free kit is included, a Narcan kit. But this is something, as we mentioned, and Anne, as she described it last week, for us, that um, this is not just something to know if you work with people that are addicted or in that community. Um, this is something that all of us can truly benefit from. You just never know when you're going to be found in a situation. Uh, and so to know how to use it, uh, is uh, very important. It's a great skill to have. Again, it's only a one-hour training. And in addition to that, um, a few days later, we will be having our, uh, sorry, that's a, a free event. You go on the website to check it all out, but, uh, and that'll be here. But in conjunction with that, we have our monthly outreach, and uh, what a great opportunity to come to the training before we go out on our uh, missions trip to Delaware, and that would be that Sunday. So on the 24th is the Narcan training, and then Sunday the 28th, right after service, we do this uh, in the winter every year, usually January or February. Uh, we go down to Delaware to partner with the Sunday Breakfast Mission, and uh, we bring help and hope in practical ways, and of course, bringing Jesus to people that are in need. And we meet a lot of people that are uh, street homeless, uh, people that are in, in poverty and in need, and we bring supplies, we bring coats, hats, gloves, blessing bags that meet an immediate need, but we also then, um, you know, Lord willing, have opportunities to share the love of Jesus, to get to know people, hear their stories, and uh, that is a big part of what we do. When we say we learn, grow, and serve, it's an opportunity to go and to serve. And so this is a free event. Anyone can go, uh, and you'll hear more details leading up to that Sunday about um, uh, you know, when we're going to leave and come back, bringing your lunch and all that kind of stuff. But um, this is a great opportunity. Get out of your comfort zone and go be 
uh, help and bring some hope to people in desperate need. Uh, so we have the Narcan training on the 24th and then the missions outreach uh, that Sunday after service on the 28th. Remember to grab a blessing bag or two on your way out. Um, we bring those on our missions trips, but we have those here available. Keep one in or two in your car because, again, you never know when the Lord is going to um, you know, create an opportunity for you to, to bless somebody, somebody in need. And uh, it's, um, again, the blessing bag has so many good things in it, a hygiene kit and socks and the Gospel of John, but it's a great way to meet a need, but also to then open a conversation about the Lord Jesus. So remember to take those as well. We thank our missions team for heading that up and putting it together. Another quick reminder, and you can find all the information on our website, trinityallenwood.com, but myself and two other local pastors, we um, have a podcast that we record weekly. We just started up again for the new year, and we record every Thursday, so new episodes are available uh, every, just about every Thursday, and we go through a, a Bible reading plan, and it's the three of us that just unpack the scripture reading for that day and discuss answering this important question, so what? We all read the scriptures, but we have to ask that question, so what does this mean to me? How do I apply these ancient truths to my life? And that's what we get to do. So it's a real unique uh, blessing that we have where three local pastors get together and we uh, get to discuss the scriptures for about 15, 20 minutes or so. You can find all the episodes on our website. It links you to our YouTube channel, so you can see them, all the, the video podcasts, so you can listen or watch, uh, and just wanted to, to make sure you are aware of that resource. Uh, and then finally, um, this is something that um, if you're on our email list, you would have gotten an email about with all the information, but we are going to be hosting uh, a special screening of a very powerful and award-winning documentary called Hope in the Holy Land. And uh, this is coming up on February 4th. It's a Sunday evening, 5.30 to 8.30. So after church, you go home and, and we'll have our lunch in that day. Go home and relax and have some dinner or whatever and come back. And uh, we're going to be screening, so showing this two-hour documentary uh, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This was made a couple of years ago, so before the war broke out. Um, but of course, we know that conflict has been going on um, for a very long time. And so this is an amazing documentary. I was able to watch it, and um, it's, it's produced, it's got a great production quality, and uh, it's so well thought out and sensitive to the subject matter. It's basically a, a pastor who has a heart to learn more about all the people that are involved in the conf conflict, no matter where they stand and whether they're Palestinian or whether they're Israeli. Um, and um, it, it, it manages to show, again, in a very thoughtful way, very different viewpoints from everyday people living uh, in that land and through this conflict. Uh, and you come away with just a greater and deeper appreciation for the people there, for uh, what really is at the heart of these conflicts. Uh, and there's some great theology in there uh, and um, it's just really tastefully done. And one of the special things is that at that event, we will have one of the producers, Justin Crone, will be here in person for a time of Q&A after the screening. And so this is a, a film, a documentary film, that you can watch at any time. You can rent or buy it online. You just go to hopeintheholyland.com. In the you can see the link through our website as well. 
So I encourage you to watch it, but to invite friends and family and come for this special event so that we can watch it and experience it together and then ask some important questions of one of the producers who was there um, going through it as uh, a pastor interviews different people. And I have to say also, uh, it's a great opportunity to learn a lot of the, the history of the conflict. There's a lot of great teaching in here about why things are happening the way they are now, what the history is there of that land and the people uh, and what is behind all this. And again, it's done in a very um, sensitive and thoughtful way. So I really encourage you to come out. It's a free event. We ask that you register uh, just so we have an idea of who's coming out just for those few hours on that Sunday evening, February 4th. Um, again, all the details are on our website. You can register there. But again, this is an awesome opportunity uh, to invite people that you think may be interested to this to learn more. And, and it's a very uh, sort of non-assuming way, a very casual and comfortable way for people to come to a church and uh, to watch the film and then get to hear um, one of the producers discuss it. We can ask questions. It'll be open forum Q&A time. And one of our missionary partners, Scott Schwartz with Life in the Messiah, will be here. He's uh, friends with Justin Crone, and he will help to moderate that event. So consider coming out for uh, this important event uh, here at Trinity. and Spread the word about that as well. Even if you, for some reason, can't make it, um, you'll see the email, or if you go to our website, you can forward the information, forward a link to our website to anybody that you think may be interested. All right? Uh, so we are back in the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a little while, right? We started this back in the summer, and here at Trinity, we love to go through books of the Bible, teaching the whole counsel of God. Uh, but we took a break for December as we uh, had a, a sort of an Advent theme, and we're talking about the importance of telling our story and telling the story, the Gospel, as part of our Discipleship Pathway series. Uh, and then we had a year-end summary uh, time together and a message, and then last week a, a, a New Year's a theme, and talking about, again, keeping our eyes focused on the truth. So we are now getting back into our sermon series. It's called King and Kingdom, and it is based on the Gospel of Matthew. So we are going through the whole Gospel of Matthew, which of course tells the story of Jesus Christ, his life and his teachings. And so what I wanted to do, just um, to make sure we're you know, uh, remembering why it is we're studying this and kind of giving the background, I just wanted to take a few minutes to review um, the, the series, why it's called King and Kingdom, review the Gospel of Matthew, and then we will get into our passage today. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, the scriptures will be up on the screen, but you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. We are still in the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, Matthew 5 to 7, and this is part of that that we're in today. But I wanted to, to kind of give a review. So before I do that, you know, every once in a while, as an introduction, I like to bring some statistics to you. And I'm, I'm not huge on statistics, but I think every once in a while some important surveys come out, and we need to kind of uh, be on the same page and understand some trends among Christians and Christian churches so that we can have an understanding of the importance of why we do what we do here at Trinity, why we teach through books of the Bible, why we believe theology matters, that what we think about God completely affects 
um, what we do in service of God because our beliefs affect our actions, right? Always, especially when it comes to God's word and uh, what we think and know about God. And so, you know, there are people today, especially among Christians, that have very differing views about how they get to heaven. And that in and of itself uh, is a difficult concept because the scripture, I believe, makes it clear that there is one way to the Father. Jesus makes it clear in his statement that I said before, our theme verse, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Many people believe that it is their works that get them to heaven. If you were to ask somebody, you know, uh, when you die, will you go to heaven? Oftentimes, what's their response? Usually it's like, yes, I'm going to heaven. You ask them why, and they say, because I'm a good person, right? Uh, I don't steal anything. I've never killed anyone. Therefore, I qualify for heaven. And um, it's a good thought. It's just not biblical, and it's not what Jesus taught. So I'd like to share with you um, just some, uh, some brief statistics. So listen to these. So the Pew Research Center has been around a long time uh, and uh, very qualified to put together these, um, uh, these comprehensive uh, statistics. Back in 2021, so just a couple of years ago, they did a comprehensive survey of Christians, and they learned that 58% of all Christians, so people that self-identify as Christians, whether they're Protestant or Catholic or what church they go to, just if they identify as a Christian, um, 58% believe that many religions can lead you to heaven. So 58% of self-identified Christians believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. 53% of Protestants, so that would be anybody that's non-Catholic, 53% of Protestants still believe that Christianity is not the only way to understand how to get to heaven, that many different religions will lead you to heaven. 53% of Protestants, and now listen to this, of them, 44% of evangelicals believe that many different religions lead the way to heaven. 44%, so almost half. This is saying that almost half of self-identified evangelicals, which traditionally would be defined as Christians who believe in the word of God as the absolute truth, and who believe that the only way for salvation is faith alone in Christ alone, not by works. That would be a part of the original and traditional definition of an evangelical. 44%, this is just two years ago, of those self-identified evangelicals believe that you can get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. But yet, we know his word in John 14, 6, his own, in six, his own word says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I ask you this morning, just in context of our passage and in my my brief review of Matthew, consider that. What is it that you believe about how to get to heaven? If someone were to ask you, hey, are you going to heaven? You said yes. I hope you would say yes. How would you answer why? What is it that brings us eternal life? There was one other statistic I would give you. 
the American Worldview Inventory. This is from three years ago, 2020. This was uh, sponsored by Arizona Christian University. They found that 41% of evangelicals, again, evangelicals traditionally defined as those Christians who believe the only way to salvation is faith alone, not by our works. But yet, 41% of current evangelicals believe good works get you to heaven. So these would be um, self-identified evangelicals who most likely go to a church who teach just the opposite, but yet 41% believe that your good works get you into heaven. I, I say this because in context for our passage today, this is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day were teaching the Jewish people. That it was about the outward expression and not the inward heart that gained you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so, in many ways, we can say things have not changed. But how sad that is. So, the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day were teaching the people of Israel, the Jewish people, that it was not really about the inward heart. It was more about your actions. And I like to say that Truly, belief in Jesus Christ helps us to understand that it is not about behavior modification, but it's about heart transformation. Does that make sense? Christianity, true Christianity, the true Christianity of the Bible of Jesus is not about just changing our behavior so that we look good and do good things, and that gets us to Heaven, it is not about modifying our behavior, but it's about heart transformation. And you're going to see that very clearly in our few verses today in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. So a quick review. So we are studying the Gospel of Matthew. We've entitled it King and Kingdom because Matthew, the writer of this Gospel, is focused so much on presenting Jesus as king, the promised Messiah, and the fact that he came to offer his kingdom to first century Israel. Right? Because you can't really be a king if you don't have a kingdom, and there's really no true kingdom without a king. And so Jesus comes on the scene as king and offers the kingdom. That is a big part of Matthew's focus we see all the way back in Genesis that God had created Adam and Eve to be his theocratic administrators to oversee and have dominion over God's creation over earth. But that was usurped by Satan, the enemy of God and our enemy. But God promised that one day he would send a redeemer, one to reconcile what was lost, us and creation back to God. And so the whole rest of the biblical narrative is about God preserving his people so that he would one day bring about the Redeemer, the promised king to the people of Israel, who would then be a blessing to the whole world. And so Matthew focuses on Jesus as king. He's bringing the kingdom. And then also, what happens when Jesus' people his very own, reject him and his kingdom. 
then what? And so that's really the theme of Matthew. And so Matthew is the author. He was, of course, a tax collector from Capernaum. He's one of the 12 original disciples. And Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel, I believe, written. And it's the longest of all the gospels, probably written around 45 or 50 AD, so about 10 years after Christ's death and resurrection. Matthew's gospel is very Jewish in character and nature. He talks a lot about the subject of the law and Jerusalem and the temple and King David and Messiah and kingdom are very prevalent themes. And these themes of Messiah and kingdom are also very Jewish and not Gentile. um, Matthew talks often about King David, about the promised kingdom, about the Abrahamic covenants, the Davidic covenant. Even Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, he traces it back to David and then all the way back to Abraham because Abraham is the father of the Hebrew race. But in Luke's genealogy, Luke goes back to Adam, the redeemer of the human race, because Luke has more of a Gentile focus. See the difference? So it's important we understand these things when we dive into any book of the Bible, but as we're going through Matthew the Gospel, why is Matthew writing this, and to whom is he writing it, and sort of what's the context and background? Matthew also emphasizes the Apostle Peter much more than the Apostle Paul. Why is that? Peter was called to be um, the, uh, to bring the gospel to the Jews. Paul was more called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So Matthew writes to believing Jews, those of course, because all the early Christians, all the first Christians were Jewish, and so he's writing to a group of Jews who now believe in Jesus to remind them, yes, Jesus is. The one that you believe for life and salvation, he is the king, I mean, he brought the kingdom. So why did he write it? To prove Jesus is Messiah, for the ones who just believed in him for salvation, to encourage them and to comfort them, and to explain the kingdom program of God. So that's what Matthew does. He develops the fact that Jesus came to bring the kingdom, to offer the kingdom to first century Israel, the fact that they rejected it. So now we have this thing called the church, which happens, which we see um, afterwards. And um, Jesus, of course, will return to his people so that one day they will accept him as king. So all that is included. But now we bring our focus uh, where we are today, Matthew 5. If you remember, the context of our passage is in what's called the Sermon on the Mount which is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded sermon we have of Jesus. Of course, um, we don't have every sermon of Jesus recorded in the Bible. We have the ones that God wanted to provide for us. But the Sermon on the Mount is the longest one we have recorded. It's Jesus teaching his disciples, and that's important. Jesus is talking to those who have already believed. We have to keep that in, in mind. They have believed in Jesus and had faith in him as the Messiah. But Jesus in this sermon is is revealing the character of those who would be citizens of his kingdom. It's like he's the king and he's teaching now to those who have believed who he is to say, this is what I expect from you. This is what would characterize a citizen of my kingdom. That is what Jesus is saying. But of course, 
these truths are for all time. They are relevant for us today uh, as believers in the year 2024. Um, There was no church yet when Jesus was talking. The church did not exist. That happens at Pentecost. You see that at the beginning of Acts. So Jesus is talking to his disciples who were first Jewish and now believing in him. And he is teaching them this is the character and nature of the citizens of his kingdom. So he starts his most famous sermon with the Beatitudes. We looked at that at the beginning of chapter 5 how it is that um, we are to act and to think as citizens of his, um, how we are to be blessed that way. And he's doing all this in light of the fact, and this is important, that the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of that day to the people of Israel were teaching something very different about how to get into the kingdom. So here is the king of the kingdom coming on the scene saying they have it all wrong. So he confronts them often, but now he is teaching his followers and his disciples something very different than what the religious leaders of the day were teaching. So in today's passage, here's what we read. I started this with our last verse from from last time, again, for review, but for context. Notice what it says in verse 20, and then the focus and attention for the rest of our time this morning is 21 through 26. So Matthew 5 And this is verses 20 through 26. Again, Jesus teaching during this sermon, so he's preaching this sermon, to his disciples, his followers who have believed in him, about the nature of those citizens of his kingdom. Verse 20 starts, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a second, then I'll read the rest. Notice this. This is Jesus, and he starts by saying, for I say to you, he is declaring his authority, right? You ever get in a conversation with somebody say, yeah, but this is what I say. You're saying, like, I have the authority. What I say is true. Jesus says, for I say to you, Now he's going to contradict something that these people had been taught and what they had believed. He says, unless your righteousness, again, he's talking about how to get into the kingdom. Because all the believers then wanted to know, okay, Jesus, you are the Messiah. How do we get into the kingdom? Are we righteous enough? Are we good enough? Because the, the religious leaders have always talked about the coming kingdom. You say you're the king. You're bringing the kingdom. How do we get into the kingdom? They told us it was by doing all these things. Jesus says, I say... Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Just imagine what they would have thought of that. They would have thought, there is no way I'm getting into the kingdom. You say, I have to be more righteous than these leaders? And they looked up to their leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. They were considered the most righteous because of how they looked and the things they did and They were looked up to, and the Pharisees would say, you have to be like us and act like us and do what we do. And so all of his listeners would have said, there's no hope. Forget about it. I'm not getting into the kingdom. I have to be more righteous than these leaders. Then Jesus goes on. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. He's starting to give an example and an illustration. But I say to you, there it is again, he's declaring his authority. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, there's that phrase again, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So what is Jesus saying here? In a nutshell, Jesus is using an example of two people, two friends, two men who are going to court to settle an argument. And Jesus, again, is teaching overall about righteousness and how you get into, how you get into heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that he is offering and bringing. And so Jesus gives an example. And he goes on to say here, he says, even if, you're about to worship God, like bring an offering to the altar, and you remember that there's an issue between you and this other guy. Maybe he's got a problem with you. you don't, maybe you don't even have a problem with him, but you know he's got a problem with you. What does Jesus say? He says, leave the offering there. Don't offer it yet. Don't, don't go into worship God yet. He says, go and make it right. Leave the offering there. Go and be reconciled. That's an important word for today. Be reconciled to your brother, then come back and present your offering. He kind of gives a different take, and he says, he paints this picture of two guys walking into court together. He's like, it's better if you settle it there on your way in before you get before the judge, because then it's going to be more tough for you. He's like, settle it out of court. Reconcile with your adversary before you even get to the court. So Jesus is saying, well, you know, you've heard it said, right? You've heard it said by the ancients. There's a, a popular phrase there. They, they would have known what he meant, meaning like the Old Testament, right? And he's quoting what? From the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment. You shall not commit murder. He says, you've heard it said, this is the standard. Don't commit murder. And if you do commit murder, then you're liable to the court, like the actual court, right? You'd be found guilty. But Jesus says, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So what is Jesus doing? He's really getting to the heart of the law, isn't he? See, again, the Pharisees were teaching, it was all about the outward expression. They were saying, you get into heaven as long as you don't commit murder. That was one of the things. Don't act on the anger in your heart. Jesus says, if you're angry in your heart, you're already guilty. Again, imagine what the listeners would think, but what do we think today when we hear that? So I got no chance. I've been angry in my heart. You mean that's all it takes for me so that I would be guilty enough? See what it says there at the end of 22? Jesus says, you'll be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Not that you will. I mean, what are we going to say? Like, 
you just call your friend a fool, that means you're going to hell. That's not what Jesus is saying, right? But he's saying you'd be guilty enough. Again, he's talking about the heart of the law that they had been taught. And what gains you entrance into heaven? What accounts for God's righteousness? What is God's standard, do you see? So even in all of this, Jesus is presenting himself as God. Because he says, I say to you, he says, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. So he's saying he has the authority to teach them this. He says, even if you're angry with your brother, you're going to be guilty. Then he goes even a step further. Let's say you're not even angry. He says, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. Maybe your version says, raka. It's kind of like today we would say, you fool. You, you good for nothing. You, you knucklehead. You imbecile. Like That's what it would kind of relate to. He says, if you say that to somebody or you say you fool, he says, you're guilty enough even by the Supreme Court. How about that? Somebody's going to take you all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States because you called them foolish. What is Jesus saying? It's about the heart. See, that's really the most important thing to remember from today. And I think we probably all heard that. We understand that. But let's put it in our context. Like, what does that mean for me? When we talk about, wait, what does God expect from me? How am I to enter into heaven? Is it by my good works? Is it enough that I have not murdered somebody? Jesus says, if you've been angry, you're guilty. You're not righteous enough. If you've called somebody foolish, if you've used a slur against somebody, whether you've said it or thought it in your mind or held it in your heart, you are guilty and you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. So then therefore it begs the question, Jesus, how do, we, how do we match the righteousness that God requires? The answer is we cannot. Can I get an amen from that? We cannot. So it's always God's standard. It's not the religious leader's standard, right? It's always God's standard. And God's standard for entrance into heaven to eternal life is perfect righteousness and holiness, which we can never attain on our own, that is why he sent Jesus. Because Jesus was perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, led a sinless life. He was the only one qualified to die on the cross and shed his blood on our behalf. So all of that work to meet God's standard of righteousness was done for us. So the gospel simply teaches us how do we attain that standard of righteousness how do, we come perfect and, how do we become perfect and holy in God's sight so that we can get into heaven, into God's kingdom? We believe that Jesus did it. We believe in the Lord Jesus, says it over and over again. The one condition for salvation, for reconciliation, is belief in the Lord Jesus. It's not belief and doing good works. It's not belief and then doing good works to prove that you're really saved. It's not about the good works. The good works are simply a response to our belief. It's, it's what comes out of the heart. It's the overflow of that, right? That is the importance of the good works, but not to prove it, not to earn it, not to keep it, because that would diminish the power of Jesus on the cross. You see that? Jesus did it all. So again, he's beginning his teaching. This is just Matthew 5. We haven't gotten to the end yet, and and this is what Jesus is teaching them. He's 
throwing them for a loop, like uh, turning everything over upside down. And Jesus is saying, if you've just had anger in your heart, if you called somebody a bad name, you would be found guilty because that is the heart of the law. See, the, the leaders of the day were not teaching the heart of the law. It was all about just keep the outward appearance going and you will be like us and get into the kingdom. And Jesus teaches just the opposite. Jesus was clarifying exactly what the law did require. When God presented the Ten Commandments to Moses and to the people, his heart, his intent was not that they would just do these things. It was the heart behind it, right? The heart behind it. Did they understand that there was no way they can keep God's law perfectly, that they would meet his standard? There was no way they needed a Redeemer a Messiah. They needed a Savior. So Jesus was expounding the true meaning of that commandment. This is a little bit of background. One theologian gives the background this way. Again, why were the Pharisees teaching this? Here's why. This is important. So for many generations, this theologian says, the oral law, the law that was passed down, right, was handed down in the memory of generations of scribes that would Write down the law. In the middle of the third century AD, so that's like in the 200s AD, a summary of the oral law was made and codified, brought together. That summary is known as the Mishnah. You might have heard of that. Okay? So the Mishnah contains 63 what are called tractates on all different subjects of the law. Right? And um, later in Jewish scholarship, right, Jewish scholars and rabbis, they busied themselves, the scholar says, uh, with making commentaries on the Mishnah. So the Mishnah was the codification of the oral law of the Pharisees, the scribes. But then later scholars and rabbis gave commentaries on that oral law, right, on the Mishnah. So it was like what they were like saying, okay, this is what it says. So do this because this is what it means, right? So that, those commentaries are known as the Talmud, or the Talmuds. So you have the Mishnah, which is the codification of the oral law, and then the commentaries on the Mishnah are called the Talmuds. There's a, Jer a Jerusalem Talmud and a Babylonian Talmud. There's different ones. He, he, fin he finishes by saying, this was the final form of the law that the scribes and Pharisees gave most importance to. You see that? So yes, they had the Old Testament. They had the Torah. They had uh, the Word of God. But then the oral laws passed down, the traditions, and then the commentaries on that were given just as much importance as the Word of God. Church, do Christians do that today in any way? Do we give importance, do we give more importance than the Bible to anything in our lives? To maybe what some other pastor on the TV or radio says? Do we give, say, well, he said it must be true? Well, I read it on the internet on this Christian website, so it's definitely got to be true. Again, it's why we keep our eyes focused on Jesus and his word, his revelation to us. I started today by reading Psalm 19, right? And God revealed himself to us through his beautiful creation, but also through the word, his word to us, the written word, and to Jesus Christ himself, the word, the truth. Right? So 
Jesus says this powerful thing. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, or I say to you. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus is doing. So let him say that to you in your life today. Man, I've heard it said, but what does Jesus say? Let Jesus say that to you, but I, you've heard it said, my child, but I tell you. How do we know what he tells us? We read his word. That's why we have to be in his word, right? So God's court is very different from the human court. Jesus is using this example. God's standard is what counts. It's the heart of the issue, the heart behind the law, right? But then also he goes on to say, if you have anger in your heart and it leads you to say something negative or bad to somebody, it's coming out, you are guilty. Boy, don't we know how much the Bible tells us about the importance of words? I think we've all probably learned that the hard way. The importance of the words that we speak. But Jesus is saying it's not only when you say them, we know you can't get it back once you say it, but it's where does it start? It's coming from your heart. Matthew 12, 34, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Also in Matthew 12, men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Now as a believer in Jesus Christ, we will have a judgment one day before Jesus. It'll judge what we have done in our Christian walk. It's not a judgment of heaven or hell. That's been decided when we believed in Jesus for salvation. But our judgment is about eternal rewards, rewards in the kingdom. And so for us, this verse is saying, yes, we will have to give an account to Jesus to everything we said and did as a believer. Elsewhere it says that that trial by fire, in a sense, will burn up those things that were not godly. So ask yourselves this question, how well are you doing with the words that you choose to speak? Jesus said that the offender is guilty enough to suffer eternal judgment. Not that he will, but he would be guilty enough because of God's righteous standard. Listen to Psalm 51, how it says this, verses 16 to 17. Just listen to these words. Remember, Jesus said if you, if you have a, a problem right, with the, a, a brother or sister in the Lord, says before you come to worship God, Take care of that. You know, when we have communion here, on the first Sunday of every month, we have communion. We'll often say, you know, Paul tells us, we are not to take communion, the bread and the cup, in an unworthy manner. Because we don't want there to be judgment on us. Not that, again, not about heaven and hell, but judgment from God about what's in our heart. The idea is before you even take communion, if you have an issue with somebody, bring it to God. If that person's in the building, go to that person. How about you don't take communion that morning and you reconcile with a brother or sister? God is, Jesus is saying the same thing here. If you're going to offer worship to God, don't do it. Leave it there for a moment. Go and reconcile with your brother or sister. Then come back and offer worship to do it with a clean and pure heart. Psalm 51 says it this way. You, talking to God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. See what the psalmist is saying? God, I know 
you want my worship and my offering, but what you desire first is that I come before you with a broken and contrite heart. That can only happen when you resolve issues with others, right? And then he says, and we wrap it up here, verses 23 to 26. Again, he gives this idea, right? Make friends quickly, right? Be reconciled with your brothers and sisters. Remember, Jesus said the world's going to know us by the way we love each other. He's talking to Christians. The world needs to see us unify, church. The way we treat each other is how the world will know that we belong to Jesus. That was what Jesus said himself. So he gives again this explanation about being in the court and how it's even better that you reconcile, right, before you even get to the judge. Because once you get there, you're going to have to pay every last penny, he says. So reconciliation is important to God. Why? It's at his heart. Think about it. Why did God send us Jesus? To reconcile us to himself. God is all about reconciling broken relationships. He's about restoration. Think about the broken relationships in your life. Maybe there's somebody you're thinking of this morning that you need to go to after church, that you need to call up or send a text to or email and begin that process of reconciliation. And Jesus says, even if you weren't the offending party, right? Maybe somebody else is, so maybe you're not offended, but you know somebody has a problem with you. If you go and reconcile with them, why? It is what God desires. It's his heart. Consider those relationships in your life that are broken and need restoration. See, it's the whole biblical narrative, church. Something was perfect, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Sin broke that. It became broken. We became separated from God because of sin. And the whole rest of the biblical narrative, the story of Scripture, is about how we can be reconciled to God. God chose for himself a people through Abraham to bring about the promised Redeemer who would live and walk among you, uh, on the earth. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... And those in that line lead all the way to Jesus. That's why Matthew gives a genealogy of Jesus to show he is the one. God preserving his plan and his purposes throughout history, thousands of years of human history, to bring about his plan to send the Redeemer. Jesus is that Redeemer. And now we know he doesn't, yet, he doesn't walk among us physically any longer. But he said he would come back. He would come back for those that believe and trust in him. So that is our great hope, right? He's coming back one day. It could be today. It could be at any moment that he comes back. Some of you are like, just let me eat lunch first. Jesus, come back. I'm hungry. So I'll be close. But we, we pray for it. Jesus, come back. The Bible ends with that. The end of the book of Revelation Right? John the Apostle says, even so, come, Lord, quickly. Come. We pray that. Come, Lord Jesus. But until then, we should be about our Father's business. We should be about reconciling in human relationships and thanking God for Jesus, who has reconciled us to our God.
Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I repeat that. Paul says this, what great words to live by today. Paul says, if it's possible, because he knows that there's no, there's no perfection here. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, meaning you do your part, live at peace with everyone. Paul says elsewhere that we have a ministry of reconciliation. It's a big part of who we are at church. So let's stand, and I want to close with this. In James 3, 9 and 10, look at what James says. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. We did that today. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in the image and likeness of God. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Consider the words that you choose. And remember the words that Jesus spoke. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of that word. We thank you, Father, for Jesus' teaching ministry on this earth, that we have a beautiful um, record of it preserved record of it all these years later, 2,000 years later. God, that we can understand and see Jesus teaching us about your heart of reconciliation. God, may we choose our words wisely. May we seek out restoration in broken things in our lives. May we understand your heart for righteousness and that it is not by the things we say or the things we do or do not do or say. It is by what Jesus did for us. Father, may we keep that as our focus at the centrality of the gospel. May we share it with others that Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he was coming to do. And if we believe that he did it for us, we will be saved and have that beautiful hope of entry into your eternal kingdom. We pray, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. But until then, help us to be people of hope for the ministry of reconciliation, telling others about new life in Jesus. We ask for this help in the name of the Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Son, Jesus, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, church. Go in peace. Amen.
Of what 